The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, Ecclesia, good morning. I am so honored to be here as we continue the series that we are in the middle of, in the middle of um, reading the book, Thirsting for Living Water, written by our very own Mike Mantell. And if you've been in the Ecclesia community for a while, you know that the CEO of Living Water is an active member at this church, and he has preached in this um, sermon series that we're doing from this book. And as I reflect on Living Water as an organization in my time here at Ecclesia, I'm reminded of back in 2010 when my friend invited me to visit this church four times. I don't know what she was thinking on the fourth time. She probably just thought, this girl really needs Jesus. I'm gonna ask again. But I finally said yes. And I went to this little church on Taft Street called Ecclesia. And one of the first things I remember about this church, an early memory I have, is watching these videos that addressed the global water crisis. And at the time, our church was partnering with an organization called Living Water. And I remember being really impressed by the church because this was a church that was not just praying for things to happen, although that is good and we should definitely pray. But this was a church that was actively involved in the work of Christ. They were partnering with organizations that were making life-saving impacts. I can't think of a much better way to impact a life for a community than providing clean water. Because as many of you know, who've been around Ecclesia for a while and we know about this organization, um, you know that dirty water isn't just gross to drink, but it's actually life-threatening and people are dying of dehydration. The very thing that water is meant to do, hydrate us, will cause diseases that dehydrate and kill. And to be honest, there's just no reason for it. There are solutions. We can drill wells that offer clean waters to communities, and that's what living water does. And one thing that made me particularly passionate about this mission is I went to a women's event at Ecclesia, and it was all about how the water crisis uniquely impacts women. And Mike writes about this in his book, but he talks about how women are often the ones making the six-hour journey to go fetch a bucket of dirty water. And it's not just that the six-hour journey ties up the women's creativity and resources and time and talents. But it's on these, this long journey that um, women are often sex trafficked or violence is committed against them. They're kidnapped. Horrible things happen on this journey. And while I don't know what that's like, one thing I do know is that even being a woman in America, in a parking lot late at night, I am careful. 
Um, my mom told me at a young age to walk really confidently and like you're strong if it's dark out in a parking lot. So if you ever see me at Kroger's at around 8 p.m. and I'm just like walking to my car, I put on an act like I'm just like a muscle woman. And I also have this other trick that I do. I uh, make a pretend phone call to an imaginary person in my car. So I'll say, hey, oh yes, are you the white Subaru? I see you, can't wait to see your face, I'm right behind you. And then I hop into my empty car. I really look crazy if you see me late at night in a parking lot. And my other friend was telling me that she um, has a key for her car that's super old school. You actually put it into the car. And so she puts that key in between her knuckles. And that way, if anybody comes behind her, she can throw a punch with a surprise. And my point is, is that even in America, as women, we are careful when walking alone. Imagine a six-hour walk in the middle of nowhere, in a violent country or part of town, risking your life to feed your family. That's the kind of devastation that the water crisis has on not just families, but communities. And it was during um, Hurricane Harvey that Mike really started to doubt whether he could service these communities well. Because um, if you heard Mike's sermon from this book, you know that he was in the middle of some personal hardship. His wife was just diagnosed with cancer. His father died. And now Hurricane Harvey was in our city and he was supposed to raise money for the thirsty abroad. Now, as somebody who has worked in the nonprofit space, I know that raising money when your community is in crisis is not an easy thing to do. Because those that are philanthropic and giving are usually giving locally, and rightfully so. We needed funds to go to our own city, and Mike was well aware of that. But it was then that he got an email from um, Becky Morris, who was a board member, and she wrote Mike a note of encouragement. She said, Mike, we have got to have this gala. We cannot forget about the thirsty people around the world. Even as we suffer because of too much water, we cannot forget about those who do not have enough. We cannot not have this gala. And to me, uh, in that moment, Becky operated out of sheer Christian hope. And the thing about Christian hope is that unlike money or water, which are limited resources, hope is not a limited resource. Hope is an unlimited resource. And Becky said, you know what? I know that our city is in need but two needs can exist at once and we can create enough hope to hold both of these at the same time. So we're gonna have this gala and we don't know if it's gonna be successful, but we're gonna leave it up to God for him to decide how we are to serve these people abroad. And I have to be honest, when I was given um, the topic of hope to preach on, I was not excited about it. 
I wasn't excited about it just given my social location in the world. Like, honestly, I don't feel I have a right to preach on hope. As people are being bombed in Ukraine and at war in Somalia and thirsty overseas and being evicted from homes here in our own city, I'm supposed to look at them for my comfort, for my home that's not going to be bombed by Russia. And I'm supposed to tell them that they should have hope like Jesus. It doesn't seem fair. But then I got thinking about hope. And the reason I didn't want to preach on hope is because I was looking at hope like it was a theory that I had to convince you of. But as Christians, we are reminded time and time again that hope is not a theory. Hope is the reality of Christ. Hope says that just when things are dead and the tomb is shut and all is lost in the world and everything you thought was wrong, when things seem dark, twisted, abused, neglected, abandoned, addicted, done, finished, that's often the starting point for a story of rebirth and resurrection. And that's not a theory of hope, that's the reality of Christianity. And so I don't have to convince you of my theories that I come up with alone in my house. I can point to the scriptures that are just real and say, hey, this is what it means to be Christian. It's to, to believe that when things are dead, they're not actually dead. And it's no wonder that Mike Mantel uses the story of Noah to talk about Christian hope, because it's also a story of flooding, like Hurricane Harvey, so there's a parallel there. But it's a story of a world coming to an end and being destroyed only so that it could be reborn again. And so that it could be reborn in a posture of hope and resurrection and redemption a promise with the rainbow that death isn't final, it's only the beginning. And so we start out in, this, in Genesis 8. If you've listened to my sermons before, I tend to read a lot of the Bible, and the reason for that is because the Bible just says it better than me. So we're going to read 14 verses of Genesis together right now. So Noah is in his ark. He's already obediently built this huge, massive ship, which he was made fun of for building. And all the waters gradually receded from the land. At last, after 150 days, the waters abated. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark at last came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains began to appear. Now this is a lot of waiting already. 150 days, and then 17th more days on the seventh month, and now it's the 10th month. And if my Wi-Fi doesn't work for three minutes, I doubt God. I'm like, really though, is there a God? There's no Wi-Fi here. Noah's waiting 150 days, then 17 more days, then it's the 10th month. That is a long time to wait. Then another 40 days. After 40 more days, Noah opened a window he had built into the ark, 
and he sent one of the ravens out into the sky. The raven flew back and forth until all the waters had dried up on the land. He then sent out a dove to see if the waters had, had subsided from the surface of the land. But the dove found no place to land safely and it returned to the ark. So imagine Noah's in this boat, he's sending out a dove, the dove goes on a mission to look for land and I just picture this bird at the window of an ark being like, Noah, open the window, there's no land. Noah lets the bird in, the dove found no place to land safely, it returned, the waters were still covering the surface of the whole earth and so Noah put out his hand brought the dove back in the ark, and then this poor dove is sent out on a second mission. After seven days, he sent the dove out again from the ark, and this time, the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in his beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And I, this is what an olive leaf looks like. It's almost God's way of saying, all of you, Sorry, I had, should I leave? I'll leave. I was really excited about that joke, guys. So bad. For good measure, Noah waited another seven days, and once more he sent out the dove. This time it didn't return. Okay, so the first time the dove was sent out, can you hear me? We're good. First time the dove was sent out, it brought back this. Second time it didn't return, which is good news. Means that the dove probably found land. It's like I'm not going back to Noah. I'm over his missions. Finally, on the first day of the first month, we call that New Year's Day. Um, in Noah's 101st year, the waters had dried up from the land. Noah removed the covering of the ark, looked out, and saw that the land was nearly dry. And by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. And God came to Noah with the message. Now, up till this point, the earth wasn't completely dry, and it finally is, and Noah is staying in his ark. And he's waiting for a message from God. I just picture God being with Noah, being like, you can leave now. Like, look outside. Some of you felt that way during the pandemic, right? All of a sudden, it's getting safer, and you're like, but can I really? What are the rules? I don't know. I imagine Noah felt really unsure about leaving that ark. And God speaks to Noah, and he says, it's time. Leave the ark now. You and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives, Release every animal with you on the ark, everything of flesh, birds, animals, and every creeping thing, so that they may be fruitful, multiply in great numbers, and fill the land and sky again. And so God symbolizes and reflects back on this creation narrative, because earlier in Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth, he said, be fruitful and multiply, and now he's saying the same thing after the flood. He's quite literally saying through this artful, poetic way that this is a new rebirth, a new beginning. This is a resurrection for you to create a new story, one that's better than the old world, because a flood has not just devastated you, but it has also rescued you from the sin of the past. And many of us feel that. 
There have been devastating things in our lives that while we were going through them, we would wish them on nobody. But it ended up being the thing that rescued us and invited us to step into the newness of what life could be like and what could resurrect in its place. But one of my favorite parts of this story is picturing Noah in that ark and it's safe to leave, and God is waiting for him to take the first step out. And I love that image because I think that Noah's Ark is about hope, and I deeply believe that. But Noah also had a part to play in this hope. He didn't get to just sit in the ark and wait for God to do things. He was an active and obedient participant in his own hope story. As God tells Noah he can leave the ark, it's time. I wonder how many of us, it's time to make that first step. Maybe it's submitting a resume, calling a fertility clinic, ending a job, starting therapy, going to rehab, saying yes to that blind date that your weird friend wants you to go on. We all act in hope all the time because I truly believe in a Brazilian philosopher by the name of Roberto Unger says this best. He says that hope is more the consequence of action than it is the cause of action. So we don't hope things and then act. We often have to act so that we can generate hope. It's a different way to think about hope, but I believe it's true. And in trying to think about stories in my own life where maybe it required some waiting, much like Noah in that ark, I was reminded of my mom. And um, my parents met in a small town in sixth grade, they're sixth grade sweethearts. They broke up for a while in college, it was pretty scandalous. But they met in sixth grade. Um, My mom was the daughter of a pastor in a small town. So they got married when they were 20. Um, I think uh, my mom was a rule follower and so they had to get married because they were really excited. So they got married when they were in college. I don't know, nobody's catching that joke. It's fine, it's fine. Um, So they got married while they were still in college. And they waited a little while to have kids. And when they started trying, after seven years and two miscarriages, my mom was a teacher, she was a counselor. Like kids were her thing. And they could not conceive at least successfully till birth. And my mom tells this story that she was at um, Gary's Grocery Store, which I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin called McFarland. And at the time there was one grocery store, it was Gary's. So I can picture this grocery store well. My mom was behind another mother and the mother was checking out. And she said that the mother was just screaming at her child and that she actually started to hit the child in front of her. 
and my mom being a teacher and a counselor, she, she felt sorry for the mother for having so much pain in her life and unresolved trauma that she was handing this off to her little one. And she felt sorry for the child that she was so abused and she intervened and she, she said, you know, enough. And she talked to the mother and she talked to the child and she drove home that day and she said she just sobbed and broke down in tears and she was so angry at God because she thought to herself, here I am, I'm a counselor, I'm a teacher, I want one thing and that's to have children and God is giving children to all these other women, maybe some women that aren't ready for children, and I want one so bad. This is not fair. But when she got home that day, her and my dad made a decision to get on an adoption list. And they waited for a while, and right when it became ready for them to adopt a child, my mom got a positive pregnancy test and she ended up having two of her own children. And I love this story of waiting and hope because my mom didn't just pray, she also acted and she thought, you know what, if I can't have my own kids, I at least wanna get on an adoption list because I'd be thrilled with either one. Either way, they are my children. One is not better than the other. And oftentimes our story of hope require us to be active participants. And oddly enough, we often are given what we hope for when we're not striving so hard, but surrendering to a plan that takes action and trust at the same time. I love the serenity prayer that um, is in a lot of 12-step recovery meetings, as well as just Christian theology. You've probably heard it before. And the serenity prayer goes like this. Let's all say it together. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I believe the serenity prayer is probably the perfect prayer for hope because it requires us to act in faith but also to be aware of what we cannot control. And I think that's what Noah did. That's what Mike did when they decided to have that gala. They can't control that a hurricane just hit this city but they can control that they're gonna have this fundraiser and uh, surrender what they're unable to control. And Christian hope is so much about living in that tension of both acting and accepting. But I think stories of hope that end happy can be a little dangerous. Because we end up believing that when we have good things happen to us that we somehow earned them or deserved them. When I was teaching high school English to freshmen, sophomores. Um, I loved that job. And my husband was playing for the Texans at that time. And he had his best season that year. And it was so much fun because I would go into school and my students would say, Miss Graham, me and my grandma were yelling at the TV. Your husband did awesome. 
Or they'd say, Miss Graham, your husband sucked last night. He should have caught that. I'm like, sit down. But I'll never forget, uh, we had just signed our second contract with the Houston Texans, which meant that I got to stay in Houston. And I was really excited about that because I loved my job, I loved all my students. And the next day I went back into class and they had seen what had happened, probably on Twitter. And um, they had different comments for me than they normally do. You know, first they were excited with me and said, congratulations, Ms. Graham. But then one student said, Miss, are you gonna buy a Maserati? <laughs> I said, no, I'm not gonna buy a Maserati, sit down. And another one said, Miss Graham, is that necklace real diamonds? I said, no, I've worn this necklace every day for two years, same necklace, go sit down. But there was one comment that I got that really changed me in that season. It was a student of mine, she came up to me and she said, Miss Graham, God has blessed you. He must really love you. And while that was sweet and I knew she meant it well, I also knew this student lived in extreme poverty she had faced sexual abuse, multiple evictions from her home. And I thought, oh my gosh, she thinks that God loves me, so he gave me this life. And I think that she misunderstands Christian hope because hope is not something I earned or deserve or am worthy of or am blessed by. Hope is a responsibility the Christians have to each other to share the good news. Hope is active. And I think when we look at other people's lives or our own lives, we often think, how can I believe in a God that lets people go thirsty and hungry, that lets people in our own city go unhoused? And I think God looks at us with those same questions. How can you let people go thirsty? How can you let people go unhoused? How can you let people go hungry? And I believe that when we take those questions back seriously, we not only are living in hope, but we're generating the kind of hope the Christians are supposed to live out. Because hope is much more a verb and an action and when we respond to those invitations honestly, I believe that's what it means to believe in resurrection. To believe that where there is suffering and death and struggle, we are the people that can bring resurrection and hope. Because we believe hope is not a theory, but a reality that we create together. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.